When you were a teenager, some of you got to think way back. Just kidding. Some of you are leaving. Don't leave. I was just joking. Um, When you were a teenager, did you listen to everything your parents told you? Raise your hand if when you were a teenager, you listened to everything your parents told you. Liars. Liars. Good thing you're in church right now because you need to come forward at the end of this message. So um, none of us listen to every single thing that our parents tell us. Uh, and this is true about me. Um, I, I was masterful at not list, listening to my parents. If they would say something, I would just out of principle probably do the opposite. Any of you like that? If someone tells you to do something, out of, just out of principle, you have to do the opposite just to, okay, some of you are, are risking enough to say you would. Um, when I was uh, in high school, we had this uh, bike trail behind uh, this, we, Kmart was in, the, in our vicinity, and there was this bike trail, this huge trails, all sorts of different places you could go, and, and teenagers and, and young adults would go up, and they'd build ramps, and they'd build all these cool stuff so you could like, jump off things, and uh, my mom knew that a bunch of my older friends would go there and do that, and she knew that I wasn't really ready for that. I didn't really have the ability and the skill to be jumping over ramps and doing crazy tricks and stuff like that, and, um, and my, so to my mother's surprise, I disobeyed her, because she Never would have expected that from me. And so uh, I go up there anyway, and I think, you know, I'm just going to go. How is she going to know where I'm riding my bike? When I leave my house, she doesn't know where I'm going. How is she going to know when I come back whether or not I really went to this, um, you know, to this place that everyone likes to go to, to ride their bikes? Well, so happens that when I get there and I'm doing all these tricks, and if you go up to the top, 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 I mean, this thing was really tall. And it took you probably about 15, 20 minutes to walk it with your bike. You couldn't ride it. It was too steep. And it would round bends, and, and it was really fun. And so, um, so we get to the top, and I'm a little, I'm going to be honest, I was a little bit um, intimidated because all these guys have already done this before, so they're ready to just rip down. Uh, this is before helmet laws and all this kind of stuff, so no knee pads, no helmets. We're just, we're old school in it. And so they start, they take off, and I'm just watching them. And they are going so fast that I'm like, I, there's no way I can do that. I can't, I'm too scared. And then, so then they turn around, they they, they all called me Becker because uh, there were so many mics. I graduated with like five or six mics, and our whole class was 54 people. So um, pretty small school. So they all called me Becker. They're like, Becker, let's go. Get down here. Don't be a wuss. I'm like, okay. There I go. And I go. And I'm, rip, I'm going down, and I'm, I'm turning. And, and it's like it's, it's kind of half pavement and half stone. So, like, you never really know what you're going to hit. So I'm, I'm, I'm whizzing down this thing, and I'm, the wind's, like, going crazy, and I'm like, woo this is awesome. And then um, I pass people. I, I guess I forgot I had brakes, I guess. I didn't realize those existed. And I'm passing people, and um, we get down to the, towards the bottom of the hill. I made it all the way to the bottom, and I look behind me, because I, I wanted to see how close they were, because I wanted to start slowing down for the bottom of the hill. Well, the night before, there was this really huge storm. And so this tree had fallen, unbeknownst to me. So I turn around and I, I'm, and then as soon, I'm, I'm still going really fast because it's kind of like a straightaway. And then I get down to the bottom, I turn this corner and there's a, there's a, br- a huge tree that's fallen. It's not quite on the ground. So there's space underneath. So I think the only, th- I can't go over it. So I got to go under it. So it, what I would say about a million miles an hour, I would say I was going approximately somewhere in the vicinity of a million. Um, I'm sliding and I do a Superman on the ground. I'm like, <laughs> my face, my face is going <laughs> all over the ground. My body, my, my, all, everything is just, if it was in, I wish, so, I wish someone could have recorded that just to see the slow motion of just how many times I smashed the ground because it had to be a lot. And so um, now, now, now I can't make it up. Now my mom, I'm all bloody totally covered. My face is all scratched up. I got stones embedded into my head. I've got um, all, this, all these sores, all these open wounds. My, my, my clothes are all tatted up. So I get, I, I go, I'm, I'm crying. I'm like, Aah! my friends are like, you gotta go to the hospital. I'm like, no, I just don't want to go home. <laughs> I wasn't crying because of the pain. I was crying because I knew it was headed, where I was heading. That was more pain. I'll handle that. Throw me down the hill again. I'd rather go through that than what's going to happen when I get home. So I get home, my mom, my mom, as soon as I walk, my mom was so, my mom was no, was no dummy. She knew it was going on. So I walk in the house and my mom goes, you went up to that place, didn't you? Didn't even ask me if I was okay. I'm covered in blood. Face is all messed up. I look like Freddy Krueger. You know, clothes are all ripped up, bloody. And I'm just, and I walk in, I try to put on, you know, the sad face. I'm like, ugh. 
Uh, she goes, you went, to that th- you went to that hill I told you not to go to, didn't you? I'm like, yeah, it hurts. She's like, yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> Mom, help me. No, you can deal with your pain. The bandages are in the, in the kitchen or in the, in the bathroom. You can go bandage yourself up. And then we had a little discussion of why I'm an idiot. And uh, she made it very clear. So, um, but there's something, so, so I, couldn't, I couldn't hide it. I couldn't really hide, you know, this, this, this part of my, my disobedience because it was quite obvious. And, and this is just to lead us into a discussion. Now, the thing that gave it away was that I couldn't get around it because I was all, ta- I was all uh, is tattered a word? Am I just using that word right? Tattered up? I don't think, ta- am I? Steve? All right, Steve's my vocabulary um, coach. So if I'm ever looking for a word, so that's okay. Oh, you brought the line. Can you show everyone that? Guys, look what they, they, they made this of me. That's my picture on top. And now, now let me explain to you why this is in existence. What happens is in youth groups, sometimes I go too far and I'm, I'm like, I'm getting to a line that people shouldn't cross and like, you know, a little bit edgy. And so they have this thing and they hold, and there's, they actually made another card with a big line on it. And the closer I get to that line, there's two people, one on each side, and I'm looking at them behind all the teenagers that are sitting down. And as I get closer and closer to that line, they walk closer and closer to each other. It's like a warning to me. Mike, don't go. Don't do it. I know where you're going. Don't go there. So thank you for bringing that with you. These guys can handle the line, though. The line's a lot farther away for the adults. So um, just keep that in mind. So, that, so thank you. <laughs> Why is it staring? Put it down. It's staring at me. It's freaky. <laughs> It's weird. All right, so this, this paper mache me is looking at me. All right, so um, just so that you know, uh, you and I, as we look at this story, I was guilty. There was nothing I could do. There's nothing I could, there's nothing that I could have said that would have taken away my guilt. I can't make up a story. It's clear that I am guilty of the charges brought against me, that I disobeyed my mom. I went and did this thing. I came home, and it was quite clear. And this is just launching us into this idea that all of us are guilty um, of something, but some of us, some of us, way, even when we come to Christ, even after we've asked him for forgiveness, even after we've experienced his salvation, somehow, for some reason, we don't allow ourselves the privilege to, uh, to get out of this sense of guilt. We don't allow ourselves the privilege. You see, you have a right to not have to feel guilty over your past circumstances, your past sins in Christ. Now, I'm hoping that what we're going to look at today is going to just unleash this idea of, of the freedom that you really truly do have in Jesus. Because you are set free. If, if you don't believe that, it's going, to, it's going to take over your whole life. It's going to stop you from being in ministry because you're not going to think you're valuable enough to be in ministry. And God's going to be longing to use you the whole time. But you're going to be cowering in a corner feeling guilty about whatever it is that you want to feel guilty for. And it's going to stop you and take away that which God could do. So we're going to look at the guilt trap. We've been looking at different traps that our identity kind of tells us. And some of you, you have a label, you have put it on yourself, or other people have given it to you, guilty. You're guilty. God can't use you because you're guilty. I don't want to be around you because you're guilty of these certain things in your life. And when we come to Christ, we find um, that that's not necessarily true. Now, I, I came up with, if anybody's squeamish of blood, we're gonna, that's what we're going to focus on. Because the blood of Christ is something very significant and powerful. His blood is, 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 is actually, the Bible uh, focuses our attention on the blood of Christ for many, many different things uh, that we need to understand about the gospel message and how it relates to our everyday life. But I kind of came up, with, I, I looked up some uh, facts just about regular blood, and I thought they were kind of interesting. Someone needs blood every two seconds. Every two seconds, there's a person alive that needs blood because they're losing it or something happened to their blood. 43,000, listen, 43,000 pints of donated blood is used every day in the U.S. and Canada. That's a lot of blood. 43 million Americans need a blood transfusion every year. 43 million Americans need a blood transfusion every single year. 94, I thought this was an interesting one, 94% of blood donors are registered voters. Just thought that was interesting. Because if you're not registered to vote, you're not good enough to give blood. Hey, I can't give blood. I don't vote. I don't care. I'm dying. Can you just give me some? Because I don't care who you vote for. Just give me your blood. One pint of blood can save three lives. If you were to start at age 17, give the maximum amount of blood, which is every 56 days, 
until the age of 79, you would give 46.5 gallons of blood. 46.5 gallons. That's a lot of blood. 13 tests are performed every, on every unit of donated blood. 11 for infectious disease. Every unit of donated blood gets 13 tests to make sure it's safe to use. This is an interesting one. If 1% more Amer- if, if, if 1% of Americans, more Americans that already do, donated blood, shortages would disappear for the foreseeable future. If only 1% increase in Americans that donated blood. Blood makes up about 7% of your body's weight. That's interesting. I say we, I say we, we get out of the whole big bone thing and just say, I'm big veined. <laughs> look, look, I just got a lot of extra blood. That's all. I mean, a normal person is 7%. I'm like around 50, 60% is, blo- is blood for me. I just, I'm just big, big veined. That's all. Um, and here's the most interesting, which is, which is where it really came down to what I thought was uh, to bring us into what we're going to talk about. There is no substitute for human blood. There's no, out of all the technology, all the bio, the bio, uh, whatever uh, that we have, that, that, that this one gets me. We have implants that can help direct blood. We have filtration devices that can take out toxins out of blood. We have, way, we have a systematic way of gathering and storing blood so that other people can have it later when they need it, but you cannot replace it. You cannot manufacture it. You can't fabricate it. You can't create it. It is something that is unreproducible. You can't reproduce blood. It is a um, substance all its own. And I think that that is really cool, that out of all the things that we have in our world, you cannot replace and duplicate blood it is something that we need from other people and, and, and we need to, to uh, have it in our bodies. We can't be without it. And so uh, this idea of blood, now I want you to understand that without Christ's blood, there is no substitute. There's no substitute. We can't get around uh, Christ's blood. We can't get around, we can't find forgiveness around that. We can't uh, sidestep the cross and try to find the same thing that we'd get from it. And sometimes I think, I wonder if we try to do that. We try to make up our own ways of discovering how to be forgiven. But we have to, let me just give you some things um, that blood does, that Christ's blood does. Let's look at 1 Peter, if you have your Bible. We're just going to kind of launch into this. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. If you have a Bible, you can read along. I'm going to kind of go, go around uh, reading different passages. But First uh, Peter 1, 18 through 19, actually, um, it says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere blood or, or was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ. The sinless, spotless lamb of of God. Do, do, I want you to understand the magnitude of what we just said. We, it, it just told us that you were bought. Think of when you go, think of Christmas. You're going to purchase things for people. You're going to buy things. You're going you're to transfer money. You're going to get something for that. God bought you with his blood. The blood of Jesus was the, was the currency that purchased me and you back to God. That's how powerful blood is. It was the currency that purchased you and me back to God. So his blood redeems us. Now it says this word, um, he, God paid a ransom f- to save you. Now this idea of a ransom and redeeming, it comes from a slavery um, a, a mindset that when a slave would be set free from his slavery, someone would have to purchase them out of that slavery. Now the Bible says we are slaves to sin and there's no way out. You're slave to it. It owns you. It directs you. It tells you where you're going to go. When you're, when you're knee-deep in sin and Jesus is not part of your life, it is pulling you into the depths of hell. It's like a chain is shackled to your ankle and you can do whatever you want. You can think whatever you want to think, but it is yanking you into the bowels of hell. And Jesus says, I'm going to purchase you and I'm going to unlock that shackle. And you know what I'm going to buy you with? My blood. I'm going to sacrifice myself and you will be set free from the shackles that are pulling you into hell by your own sin and I will save you. It's a ransom. It's slavery. Now the next one, that uh, look at Ephesians. This is a fantastic verse. It talks about intimacy with God. Ephesians 2.13, we're going to be in. It says, But you have been united with Christ Jesus, 
Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. You have been brought near to God. You see, your sins separated you, an infinite separation. You couldn't even get near God. You couldn't even see him with a, with a, with a telescope. You couldn't, there was so much separation, there was no hope to get near him. And then Jesus enters the picture, and through his blood, and because you're covered in his blood, and because his blood was shed for you, that, that distance, completely gone. Whatever separated you from God is erased, it's eradicated, it's destroyed because of the, the blood of Christ. So anybody who says, I can't, I don't know if I can be near to God, I don't know if I can draw near to God, I don't know if I, I, don't know if I can get close to God because of, you know, where I'm, what I'm doing, God says, in Christ, you can come to me. In Christ, you can draw near. In Christ, there is no reason to be separated because he has taken the punishment which was his blood. But this one is the one we're going to settle on. 1 John 1.7. This is what it says. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us of all sin. You have to understand what this verse means. This verse, the idea of being cleansed, is so imperative that we understand. It's so easy to pass over. It's so easy to glance over um, as we're reading the Bible because we just, we just kind of go, yeah, that makes sense. I'm cleansed. I'm cleansed of Jesus' blood. That's cool. But for those of us, for those of you in this room who, who, who have a hard time set, letting yourself be freed from the, from the damnation that used to be part of your life, and, and for some reason there's a comfort in, in, being, in feeling guilty. For, we get so used to the guilty feeling that it's almost, it's almost foreign to think, can I really live this liberated life in Jesus? It's so weird to think that I don't have to feel guilty for, for my sins anymore. It's so weird that I can actually feel liberated. I don't understand if I can even do it. But right here, it says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, to understand this, we have to go way back. We have to go way back in, in the Old Testament because this is where the idea of blood and sacrifice really comes into play because Jesus, Jesus uh, was foreshadowed, the blood of Jesus was foreshadowed in something that happened in the Old Testament. So we're going to go to your favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. So exciting. It's the most exciting book. But if you were to read through Leviticus, you will see so much foreshadowing of Jesus. And I know, I know that some people have a hard, it's hard to work through this because there's so many laws, there's so many rituals, there's so many sacrifices, and it, it gets a little bit repetitive after a while because it's just sharing with you the, the, the systematic way that the priests would have to atone for the sins of the people and all the different sacrifices they'd have to make and all the different uh, ceremonies that they'd have to do. Um, but we see in Leviticus foreshadowing of what's to come. And so we're going to read something that the priest, the high priest had to do, which is going to give us something uh, specific as it deals with Jesus. So we're going to look at uh, Leviticus 16. We're going to look at verses 15 and 16. It says, Then Aaron must slaughter the first goat as a sin offering for the people and carry its blood behind the inner curtain. So we have one goat, one goat, one poor little goat. Now it says he has to slaughter it. Now, um, I don't know about you, but I don't think that that was a very, you know, we, we kind of look at that and we're like, Aaron must slaughter the first goat as a sin offering for the people and carry its blood behind the inner curtain. Blah, 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 blah. But do you understand? He had to kill the goat. I mean, some of you are real, you know, we live in 315 Hickville and some of you just can't wait to gut a deer and I don't, you're just crazy weird people. But uh, you got them hanging in your garages for crying out loud. I don't understand. There's got to be some kind of law against some kind of, something's weird. If I walk into your house, just warn me if you have a dead carcass hanging in your garage. Say, use the other entrance. Crawl in the window. Give me some other entrance. Chimney, I'll pull a Santa. I don't care. Give me some other way other than passing by that rotting carcass hanging in your garage. But, um, so, but it says Aaron must slaughter the first goat. This is no um, small deed. The goat, the goat was probably not sitting there going, oh, yay, I'm going to be slaughtered. Yay, I'll just lay here. 
The goat was probably reeling around and screaming and yelling and freaking out, however they would do it. And, and, and this was an illustration to, the, to Aaron and every high priest that the significance and the, and the dramatic, the depth of our sin, that it needed a sacrifice. The death of an animal, the death of this goat was needed to appease the wrath of God. This is where we're going to look at. But it says, um, so it says, slaughter the first goat as a sin offering for the people and carry its blood behind the inner curtain. There he will sprinkle the goat's blood over the atonement cover and in front of it, just as he did with the bull's blood. Through this process, he will purify the most holy place and he will do the same for the entire tabernacle because of the defiling sin and rebellion of the Israelites. So it was for the Israelites. The Israelites had rebelled and they needed to be purified. And the only way to be purified was to take the punishment they deserved and to put it on something else, which was the goat. That's about as simple as we can make it. Their punishment was put on the goat, slaughtered, so they didn't have to be slaughtered. It was either them or the goat. Does that make sense? It's either them or the goat. So they chose the goat. It's a good choice. It's pretty smart of them. No one else is allowed inside the tabernacle when Aaron enters it for the purification ceremony in the most holy place. No one may enter it until he comes out again after purifying himself, his family, and all the congregation of Israel, making them right before the Lord. Okay, so this ritual, this sacrifice, this slaughter of, a, of this goat purified and made right the people of Israel. All of them. This one goat in this sacrifice appeased the wrath of God for all of Israel. It says, making them right with the Lord. So then um, let's skip down to verse 18. When Aaron has finished purifying the most holy place in the tabernacle and all, in the altar, he must present the live goat. There's two goats. One's the slaughtered goat. Now here we have a second goat. He will lay both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, rebellion, and sins of the, world, sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. Then a man, especially chosen for the task, will drive the goat into the wilderness. As that goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry all the people's sin upon itself into a desolate land. Think, picture it. A goat was just slaughtered. Blood is sprinkled over the atonement cover. I, uh, it's, a, it's a gross situation. The, the, the high priest does this. Their sins have been atoned for. The, the wrath of God, instead of being put on the people, has now been put on the goat, that poor little goat. Now, by the way, this was not any ordinary goat. This was a special goat that they would wait and it would, have no, it would be spotless. It would have no defects. It was the most expensive goat of the flock, and they didn't save it to themselves to, to, to sell it to get more money. They saved it to slaughter it to appease God because God was not going to take second-rate goats. God wanted the best. God wanted you to trust him, and God wanted you to give him the best of what you had to offer. But the second goat is, is, is a, of, a, of special interest to us today because um, it says that they take a live goat and he would lay his hands on the goat's head and confess the sins and the wickedness and the rebellion of the Israelites on the goat. And then the goat would be ushered away into the wilderness. Now picture this. All the people are watching as this goat is wandering away. And what's on it? Their sins. It's a visual. It's a symbolic visual. It's an illustration that... As the, as the goat leaves and enters the wilderness, so goes their sin. So they had the ability, the right, to not live as if they were guilty of the sins that were on that goat because that goat is gone. That goat is in the wilderness. It's out of here, and it's taken their sins with them. And some of us have to realize that in Jesus, this was foreshadowing who Jesus was going to be, and this is where we actually get the term scapegoat. If you ever didn't know that. You hear of a scapegoat. What's a scapegoat? It gets you out of, it's, it's something you put, you put um, blame on so that you don't have to be in trouble, right? Oh, you're just looking for a scapegoat. We're all looking for a scapegoat, and his name's Jesus. Jesus is our scapegoat. Jesus is the one that took on our punishment, our, 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 our rebellion, our wickedness, just like this is saying. And you have to believe, you have to remember that that goat wandered away. Jesus took your sins on that cross and died, taking them with him. They are yours no more. You don't own them anymore. You are not guilty of them anymore. And the more we forget that, the longer it's going to take for God to get all of us and be able to pursue us the way he wants to because we will forget that we have this ability. Jesus on that cross, not that cross. That'd be cool if we had that cross but that's not the one. But on the cross, Jesus took everything. 
Do you know why that's why he said it is finished? He took it all. It's gone. You are able to live a free life. Now, just to kind of bring some understanding to this, the first goat deals with God's wrath, and the second goat deals with guilt. So the object of the goat was wrath for the first goat, and the object is guilt. The slaughtered goat diverts God's wrath from the people onto the goat. The scapegoat illustrates purity by removing the sins far away, taking their guilt with it. So you have been cleansed. That's the idea that says in 1 John, the cleansing. Now, the actual biblical term, the, 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 the theological term, is expiation. Now, if you've never heard that term before, maybe have you ever heard of propitiation? Anybody ever heard the word propitiation? We've discussed it here uh, quite a few times. Um, propitiation, a big word. I'm sorry if you're not an English major. You're probably like, what is he talking about? I'm going to explain it to you. Propitiation is basically just um, a substitute taking the wrath of God and putting it on something else. So you've been propitiated to make favorable. That's what the word means, to make favorable. Now the word expiation means to remove guilt. One propitiates a person, one expiates a problem. Your problem of sin has been eradicated. Your problem of sin has been eradicated in Christ. So, where does this lead us? This leads us into a really peculiar place because if that's true about you, then you are, I, I'm calling, I keep coming back to this because we have to understand that you are now allowed to live a life that's been liberated from your guilt. And there's a verse in Colossians, and this is, I want to read this to you, Colossians 1. This is one of the most sobering verses just to remind us of who Jesus is and how Okay, we're going to start in verse 15. Just this amazing description of Jesus. It says, "Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on the earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is the first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And here's the big part. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. You are at peace with God. God is not angry with you if you're, in, if you're in Christ. Your punishment has already been dealt with with Jesus. It's already gone. It says he's reconciled, he's made peace with everything. Now this is where, now we know that, that Paul is talking uh, to uh, believers here because it says this includes you who are once far away. You see, he's trying to remind people, and I wonder if many of us are in this place where we've forgotten how powerful this is, because Paul is trying to remind them, this includes you who were once far away. You were once far away. You're not anymore. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies. You were his enemies. You're not anymore separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. You're not separated anymore. You were once his enemies separated. He says, but yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Get that through your skull. Without a single fault. I stand before God today because of Jesus, because of his blood, without a single fault. Even though yesterday I did a lot of stuff, probably thought some things, did some things, didn't, didn't give God as much as I needed to. But because of Jesus, I'm able to continually to live beyond that guilt. I'm able to continually live past that and continually be driven towards him more and more and more and closer and closer and closer because I don't have guilt drawing me back. 
Now, this is his, his, his uh, encouragement to these people, and I believe it should be our encouragement today. It says, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. You must, you must, you must continue to believe this truth. I mean, if we, if we took every one of those words and, and, and just kind of uh, made them stand out, accentuated them a little bit, it says, but you, it says, then, but you must. I mean, think of that. Every single one of these words is meaningful, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. If you forget Bad news. There's going to be little things that are going to come into your life. There's going to be little words that are going to come into your brain that are going to stop you and thwart what God's trying to do in your life. Then he says, don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. He's reminding them, do you remember? I mean, think back. Some of you think back to that moment when you received Christ the first time. When you realized, I remember exactly where I was. I was in the basement of my first church Grace Assembly of God in Syracuse, I was in the basement of that church and all of a sudden, the message that was being preached was about Pharaoh and how um, God hardened his heart and at the end, the person asked, is your heart as hard as his? What does God have to do? How many plagues does God have to put into your life before you'll pay attention to who God is? How How many layers of hardness has your heart developed that God needs to get through? And I realized at that moment, God spoke through his, to my heart through his Holy Spirit and said, Mike, your heart is about as hard as it gets. And there was like this moment where I was either going to drop my guard and I was going to get on my knees and I was going to lay my life before him or I was going to walk away and never, and never come to church again. That's where I was at. At that very moment, I was at the point where I was either going to give him my life or never look at it again. And I dropped to my knees. It wasn't even the alt. I mean, there wasn't, she was, the, 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 there was a, a girl, a youth worker in the youth group I used to go to. I was just going, I was just going back to visit friends. I just wanted to go see, see some old friends. And here, I'm just sitting in the back like, yep, drunk the night before, by the way, just sitting in the chair, probably all bloodshot eyes, whatever, sitting there, and all of a sudden, God goes, bing, target, crosshairs right on my heart, and said, Mike, you're that guy. Your heart is hard. What are you going to do? Can I have that heart? Can I make it soft? Can I, make, can, I, can I do something radical in your life, Mike? And right there, I got down on my knees and I, began, and I was just crying, I was tearing up, and I was on my knees with my head in the chair in the back just sitting. And there, that moment, I gave my life to Christ. So when, I, when, it, when it says something like this, it says, don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. I heard the good news, I received assurance, I believed at that moment that God was completely restoring my life. I believed wholeheartedly that God had totally begun to do a, a new work in me. And I rose up from that place and I felt so much, so powerful, um, not, not power like I could do a lot, but just that I had overcome something so huge in my life because God had spoken to my heart and he had done something miraculous. And then sometimes as we live the Christian life, something happens where we forget about that, right? Some, some why? What happens in the middle of, between salvation and present day? that convinces us that that assurance we had then has somehow been reduced. What happens? I don't know. But I believe that Paul is sharing with his people and that I believe we need to understand today that we cannot drift away from the assurance that we received when you heard the good news. That is powerful stuff. I don't know if any of you have, have forgotten, but here's the thing I think of when I think of guilt. When I think of guilt... I think that oftentimes we become really crafty at, make, at, at developing a life contrary to who we really are. And I would say we spend a lot more time developing that life than we do developing the life God has for us. I think one of the most beautiful things is when a, a, a brother or sister in Christ comes in forward and just, ref, and just uh, reveals something deep in their heart that they're sinning in something that they want help in, something that they're in dire need of people to come around and rally around them and pray for them. We had a retreat uh, just not too long ago uh, for our high school students. Uh, and, and, uh, and so we had these things called rooms of grace. And that the, one, the one criteria that happened is if you entered this room of grace, you had to allow for whatever was going to come forth to come forth without any judgment and any ridicule. And people were, ref- people, people were being, rest- I mean, it was amazing that all the guys in our group were talking about things that they were dealing with. 
all coming, I mean, and, and, I, and every, I asked every single one of them, how many people have you told about this? And they said, this is the first time. What is it about, what is it about churchy people? What is it about, what is it about being at church that we feel like we can't be open? We feel like we have to make this kind of life about ourselves and we can't really, we're hoping, we keep coming, hoping that someday, maybe someday, maybe someday I'm going to open up and this life that I'm looking to live is going to be before me. And Paul says, look, everything's been dealt with on the cross. So if people and man want to come down on you and want to give you a hard time, I say let them. If mankind wants to come down and ridicule and slander you, bring it on. You're just man. You're just man and woman. But when the God of the universe says that I've been forgiven, I'm going to lean on that. When the God of the universe says that I'm guiltless, I'll lean on that. Not in a haughty way. Not so I can go out and sin on purpose and then just go, well, God forgives me. That's not what it's about. But it's about when I'm, att- when I'm running after God and I trip up a little bit, I can rely on God's grace. When I'm chasing after the throne room of God and I, ch- and I, and I mess up a little bit, I can rely on God's grace. I don't have to look at my life and go, oh, I'm not good enough. Jesus was good enough for me. I want to read a, an excerpt out of a, a book um, that I have. It's called A Gospel Primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. Uh, Carl Brazelton gave this to me. It's probably on my top five favorite books I've ever owned. We'll leave it to Carl to give me the, one of those. Um, it's just a little devotional, but it's powerful. And um, I want to read something to you, an excerpt. It's called Exposed by the Cross because I think some of us are, the reason why we're so, we're so um, apprehensive to come forward is because we're, we're afraid of what people might find out about us and we're afraid of what they're going to do with that information. The cross says it's already been dealt with. It's already gone. And I want you to hear this. And I, to me, this is some powerful stuff. It says, The cross exposes me before the eyes of other people, informing them of the depth of my depravity. If I wanted others to think highly of me, I would conceal the fact that a shameful slaughter of the perfect Son of God was required that I might be saved. But when I stand at the foot of the cross, I am seen by others under the light of that cross. I am left uncomfortably exposed before their eyes. You see, the mere fact that I say I'm a Christian means that I have done horrible things and treasonous things against God that I needed forgiveness for. I don't stand before the the throne room of God and I don't kneel before the cross of Christ in, in a way to say I'm perfect. I kneel before that throne going, I am horrible. I need God's grace because I don't do it right. I am a gossip at times. I do slander people's names at times. I am haughty and arrogant at times. I'm not a great guy. I do a lot of dumb stuff because the world and something about it just gets in, in me and, and I have to come back to the cross. So I don't, I don't come to church because I think I'm worthy of coming. I come because I know I'm not. And I need the cross of Christ to, to heal me and to save me and to perform what it needs to perform within me. So when I stand at the foot of the cross, I am seen by others under the light of that cross, which says, sinner, saved by grace. I am left uncomfortably exposed before the eyes of others. Indeed, the most humiliating gossip that could ever be whispered about me is blared from Golgotha's hill. And my self-righteous reputation is left in ruins in the wake of its revelations. With the worst facts about me thus exposed to the view of others, I find myself feeling that I have truly nothing left to hide. Isn't that true? The cross exposes the most deepest wounds, the most, the most disgusting sins. It reveals it to us. Thankfully, the more exposed I am, the more exposed I see that I am by the cross, the more I find myself opening up to others about ongoing issues of sin in my life. Why would anyone be shocked to hear of my struggles with past and present sins when the cross already told them I'm desperately sinful? Duh, I struggle. That's why I came to Christ, because I struggle. I, I, like, I like the idea of getting used to the fact that if you were to come to someone and say, here's a sin I'm struggling with, and they were to not deal with it, uh, you know, well, I, or, you know, gossip about it, I'd be like, well, what do, you, what do you think I am? Duh, I struggle. I struggle with this. For some of you, you may need to come forward and find a, a friend or a person to confide in and say, I've, I struggle with stuff. I struggle with lust. Maybe that's something you need to confess to someone. I struggle with, with, with lust. I struggle um, with finances. I spend way too much. I spend so much stuff because I, for some reason I just want more and more. I don't know. Whatever God will put in your heart, that's what you need to deal with with God. It says, and then, and the more open I am in confessing my sins to fellow Christians, the more I enjoy the healing of the Lord in response to their grace-filled counsel and prayers. 
experiencing richer levels of Christ's love in companionship with such saints. I give thanks for the gospel's role in forcing my hand towards self-disclosure and the freedom that follows. My question to you is, are you free? Now, the, to close, um, I want to ask you this question. How do you know if God loves you? How do you know? How do you know? It, it, it is not by feeling it. Can I just be honest? There are times that I don't necessarily feel close to God. I don't, I, my hair doesn't stand up in the back of my neck all the time, and I don't go, whoa, I'm close to you, Jesus. Sometimes, most of the time, it's this. It's Jesus on the cross. The cross screams, I love you. It blares, I love you. If the cross of Jesus and the punishment that was, secu- that was on him so that you could be secured, if that doesn't scream, I love you, I don't know what does. If this position for Jesus doesn't say, I love you, then you'll search for a really long time for something else. God's love came in the form of Jesus. In fact, the Bible even says that God demonstrated his love by sending Jesus to the cross. God demonstrated, God proved his love. He showed you just how much he loves you by sending his only begotten son on the cross for you and I. You can be set free. You can be. In fact, for some of you, you are, and you just got to live like it. You have to allow yourself the privilege to get out of the funk and let God have access to that other part of your life and bring joy to your life. Um, I'm going to just, as our worship team comes up and we prepare um, to close uh, in a song, um, I'm just going to show you this video as we lead into this. And um, when the video is over, if you guys can just stand up and uh, these guys are going to lead us in a a last song. And, uh, but just kind of think through, have you forgotten? Have you drifted away? God is totally ready to go. Come on back. I am, God is all about coming back. God is about first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, a millionth chances. Everything that you did yesterday, today, and tomorrow has already been buried when Christ died on that cross. Amen? Amen. Check out the video.
bears repeating that what we just read, it, ta- it says that um, when you stand before God, you're at peace with him and you don't have a single fault. Now, I know that we like to remind ourselves of all the reasons why we're doing things wrong or all the reasons why we can't live up to God's standard, but God says, I see over that because Christ has dealt with it. And we're going to have to get used to the fact as Christians that we are liberated from our guilt because of Jesus. We have to get used to the fact of living free. We have to be able to get out of the mire of our own self-righteous or self, um, self-guilt that we put on ourselves because God himself, the God of the universe, says you're guiltless in Christ. In Christ. You're set free. I say we start living free. I say we find ourselves in a place of overwhelming joy. That we find ourselves in a place of overwhelming um, love for who God is. You see, we think we're supposed to be dogs begging for scraps from God's table when he says, I got a feast ready for you. Do you think of yourself that way? Of some mangy dog going up to God, just kind of trotting up and going, please give me a little. Please give me a little of you, God. I just want a little. I know I'm unworthy, but give me a little. God says, would you stop it? Get up. I've got a feast ready for you. I'm ready to pour myself into you. Stop looking at yourself that way. I don't look at you like that. Every reason that I would look at you like that, God says, I've given to Jesus. Do you know when Jesus prayed in the garden that he would have that cup pass for him? Do you know what was in that cup? God's wrath. He was going to consume the wrath of God. And he prayed three times that if there was another way, that maybe that could go on. But he said, but your will be done, not mine. He consumed his wrath. You don't have to. Don't put your own wrath on your own life. God has forgiven and redeemed and ransomed and reconciled you. And you're allowed to live like it. As you you leave this place, maybe we could think through that idea. God, see now, now I don't have to read my Bible out of guilt. I don't have to read it going, oh, if I don't read it, God's going to be really angry. Oh, I missed two days in a row. I can't go back and read it now. I'm just not worth it. Now we get to be refreshed and renewed every single day. The Bible says his mercies are new every day. Why? Because I'm going to need new mercies every day. We're going to have to get used to living free. Heavenly Father, as we stand here, God, in your presence, I pray that you would just begin, after knowing what your blood has done, Jesus, after knowing how significant it is, the magnitude of what it, of what it stands for, God, that it would challenge us to rise up as people who can live for you now, who can abandon our old life, abandon our own way of doing things, because we now know that we have been set free. God, for those of us that have been walking with you for a long time and for some reason we just haven't gotten past this hurdle, God, I pray that today would be a brand new day for them. You're such a good God. I cannot believe that you see us the way you say without a single fault, but I believe it. I believe it today, God. It seems unbelievable, but I believe it because you say it and you're not a liar. If you say it, then it's true and I'm going to lean on it. Thank you, God, for your loving grace. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood that was shed for us. You're such a good God. I pray that as we leave this place, God, we would be new people, refreshed by your spirit, refreshed and to go out into this place, go out into this world and not be intimidated by it, not be intimidated by what we might uh, experience, God, but but set free because we know who you are and we're going to lean on that. So we pray for all of this in Jesus' awesome, precious name. And everybody said, Amen. Let's give God a, just, a, just some praise. He's awesome. I'm just going to leave these altars open. If anybody just wants to come forward and pray, we'll have our prayer partners up here if you want anyone to pray with you. Um, but uh, go in God's grace, eat more turkey, and bring some to my house.